What a sweet time of worship we just had. Thank you, Jared and the team for leading us in worship. The Spirit was very present with us in that time. I want to start us off in Romans chapter 3. So we'll get to, just put your finger in Genesis chapter 11. But I want to start in Romans chapter 3. The question we must ask this morning to ourselves is this. How are we like the men and women of Babel? Not how are we not like them, but how are we like them? And so often we can come to the text and we can read these stories and think they're cute stories and we can uh, remove ourselves from the story. But we are the men and women of Babel. We've been doing it and mankind has been doing it ever since Babel. And so we have to ask ourselves this question this morning, how are we like them? And it starts in Romans chapter 3, verse 10 and 11, and then we'll skip down to verse 23. It says this, this is true about all of mankind. In Romans chapter 3, verse 10, it says, none is righteous, no, not one. That means all of us in this room. No, not one understands, no, not one seeks for God. All have turned aside Together they have become worthless. And verse 23. For all have sinned and all have fallen short of the glory of God. That's all of us in this room. There's not one of us that in, in our day sought the Lord. Now that may not be true for you today that you've become a believer, but what is true about all of mankind, we've all been like the men and women at Babel. We've all tried to, in our own way, build towers to reach God or become like God. And so you have to ask yourself, and I have to ask myself this question this morning. First, A, what towers have I built to become like God? And maybe the more pressing question this morning is this, what am I building to become like God? This passage has to do with our attempt to become like God. And it has to do with our attempt to gain power and control. That's what happened in Genesis chapter 2 and 3. This is just a reflection about what happened to their first father. That man wanted to become like what? God. That was the original temptation from the serpent. If you could become like God, wouldn't you become like God? And they went on and said yes, and they took the fruit from the tree and they ate it and their eyes became open and they discovered things that they had not discovered before and we've been doing that ever since. You and I in this room have been doing it as well. But we have to ask ourselves, how is that so? How have we become or wanting to become like God? There's one verse in Genesis chapter 11 that is true for every one of us. What the very heart of man had in this story. They wanted to make a name for themselves. Has that not been true throughout history? Is that, is that not what Hitler wanted to do? Was make a name for himself? Is that not what Stalin wanted to do? Is that not what the great uh, Alexander the Great wanted to do? Is that not what these... Athletes want to do. They want to make a name great for themselves. They want all the attention to be on them. 
And now we can sit back and say, oh, that's not true for me. But that is true for you and me. We do want to become like God. It's in our DNA. It's in our core. It comes from us from what we would say is original sin. And we fight against that every day, do we not? If we're honest with ourselves. My hope is that we will learn from this passage how to have humility. The only way to fight that desire, that temptation to have power and control is through one word, to be humble. But in order to be humble, we ought to know two things. You ought to first know who you are and then know who you aren't. Understanding who you are will help you have eyes to see who you are not. Who you are not is you are not like God. So I want to look at three things in this passage this morning. I want to look at man's arrogance. Then I want to look at God's awareness of our arrogance. And then I want to look at God's reversal or God's judgment on our arrogance. So let's look first at our arrogance. Now remember, we can come to this passage and we can judge these people, but I want us to have eyes for our own lives. My hope is that you're not thinking about your spouse as we go through this passage. Like there's no elbow nudges that are needed. It ought to be a pressing on the heart. Like, how am I like this? Where's my arrogance this morning? And then as a way of application, we're going to see what God is calling us to as a way of application at the end. And so it says this in the verse four verses. This is our arrogance. This is our situation. This is what's happening in this text. This is happening in the moment of Genesis chapter 11. Many scholars, and I believe this to be true, if you look at Genesis, Genesis chapter 10 and you look at the back half of Genesis chapter 11, and this, you think, why is the story of Babel dead smack in the middle of two genealogies? You ever come to the passage and thought that? Well, most scholars, and I believe this to be true, th- this could be written in Genesis chapter 10, verse 1. Now, for whatever reason, the way Moses decided to write this, He decided not to. He decided to break up the genealogies. But if you remember back in Genesis chapter 10, he begins to go through the generations of how they've already been dispersed. And now he gives us in the middle of the genealogies how they were dispersed. They were dispersed throughout all the land. Remember, they had come together and God dispersed them across the land. And now we see how he dispersed them. He dispersed them through their arrogance. And so if you've ever wondered, just as a small Bible uh, college classroom setting, Genesis chapter 11 verses 1 through 9 could be Genesis chapter 10 verses 1 through 9. But Moses decided not to write it that way. So don't be confused. It's not like he breaks it up. And this is like, it's like if you go to the text and think, well, how is this possible? It's possible because Moses is telling us exactly how they were dispersed through the land. And he says this. This is our arrogance. This is how we were dispersed. It says this. It says, Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. Or the way the Hebrew says it is this. They had one lip or they had one tongue. So all of mankind in that moment spoke the same exact language. They could understand each other. And in understanding each other, they had an arrogance or a pride about themselves. And then in verse 2 it says this. And as the people migrated from the east, highlight that word east 
in your Bibles. Underline it, circle it, score it, however you want to do. That's important in this text. They found a plain in the land and they settled there. And they said to one another, let us make bricks and burn them. And they had bricks from stone. And then they began to build, it says in verse 4, and then they came and said, let us come together and make ourselves a city and a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we can make a name for ourselves. Three things we see. We see the situation. The situation is this. All of mankind had one language and they were migrating from the east. Now I said highlight the word east in your Bibles. The, the word you might think, well, why would Moses give a geographical location? It's not because he just wants you to know exactly where you are. He's using a play on words. If you look throughout Genesis and you look throughout the Bible, as the people of God move east, they're moving away from the presence of God. Remember what it said in Genesis chapter 3. He put them to the east of where? The garden. So God, when it says they're moving east, they're moving away from the presence of God. So right off the bat, we see mankind moving away from where God is. Now, how many of us have done that? We move east or we move away from the presence of God. Our situation is this. Where arrogance stems from is this. Away from the presence of God. You will not be an arrogant man or an arrogant woman if you're in the presence of God. It is impossible to do that. But it is not impossible to become arrogant if you move outside of the presence of God. Because the moment you move outside of the presence of God, you no longer have the right perspective. Because when you're in the middle in the presence of God, you realize how small you are and what we just sang, how great God is. There is no way to be arrogant in the presence of God. And that is what happened here in Genesis chapter 11, remember what had just happened in Genesis chapter 9. The flood had come and wiped out all wickedness. They understood the presence of God. They understood His power, His reign, His control. And just a few generations later, they had moved out of the presence of God. And I wonder for us, church, how we've moved outside of the presence of God. Do you remember that moment When you gave your life to the Lord in your salvation, how sweet that moment is, how grand God felt to you. Like the overwhelmingness when you walked an aisle, prayed a prayer, knelt at the bedside, the overwhelmingness of the presence of God in your life. That is what brought you to repentance and salvation. It wasn't because you simply wanted to pray a prayer. You had an awareness of God's greatness and grandeur in your life. And I wonder how we've slipped from that. That is why the psalmist over and over and over says, bring back to me the joy of my salvation. What the psalmist is saying is, bring me back to your presence. And I just wonder, church, do we really want to be in the presence of God? Because when we're in the presence of God, there will be humility in all of us. But these men and these women of that day did not want to be in the presence of God. Now you may say, well, Todd, they were building a tower. I'll get to that. But building a tower was not so they could be in the presence of God. And so they resolved that they had a solution to what their problem was. And what was their problem? 
Their problem was they wanted to become like God. That was their solution. Because in your arrogance and in my arrogance and in my pride, my solution to my problem is always to gain power and control. Because there's something in me, there's something in you, when I'm outside the presence of God, life begins to fall apart. Does it not? And what do I tend to want to do when life falls apart? What I want to do, I'll just be honest, I want to grab everything around me to be back in control. And so that's what these men and women were doing. They were out of control. They thought their best thinking that got them there was, let's build a tower, let's become like God. Let's make a name for ourselves and and let's not be dispersed throughout all the land. Because they remember what happened the last time they were dispersed throughout all the land. A flood came and wiped them all out. And so what do they do? They build a tower. Think about this for a moment. Why would you build a tower? So that if a flood ever comes again, they could get to the top of the, the top of the tower to what? Get away from God and God's judgment. It wasn't that they were just building a tower to get to God, they were building a tower to get away from God and God's judgment. And remember what God had told them after the flood. He sends them out of the ark and says, What? It's exactly what he said to Adam and Eve. Be Fruitful and multiply and what? Cover the earth. And what do they say? Oh, we're not going to do that. They say, let us build a tower so that we don't have to get dispersed from God. Let, let, let us disobey God. So their arrogance leads them to a, a place that they think they're in control and it leads them to a deeper place of strict disobedience. Anyone ever done that before? The further away from I get from God, the more I become like God, the more my sin increases. Am I the only one? Because it's awfully lonely up here today. Like the further away from I get from to God, I look how my sin in my life increases and increases and increases. And then I sit on top of my sin to get away from my sin. That's what these men and women were doing. And they had this arrogance. And this pride that they thought they could do it. So they start building a tower. And brick by brick by brick, their arrogance increased. Has that not been true in your life and in my life? When I look back 11 and a half years ago before I checked into rehab, I thought I was unstoppable and invincible. I was so stupid. I thought all the lies, all the manipulation, all the denial, all the secrets, man, I'll never get caught. But when I look back, man, it just began to increase and increase and increase tenfold to a place I couldn't even manage it anymore. I didn't remember the lies I had told. But I thought, man, I had built myself a tower to get away from God. Am I the only one? And so what happened to me is my arrogance increased. I really did think I was invincible. And that's what happened to these men. Two things happened. Their arrogance said this. Let us make a name for ourselves. And let us be in direct opposition 
to God. That's what it says in the text in verse 4. Highlight in verse 3 it says, and they said to one another, come let us highlight that in your Bible. Come let us make these bricks. Then in verse 4 it says, come let us build for ourselves a city and make a name or come and let us make a name for ourselves. Least we be dispersed over the whole face of the earth. Their arrogance led to pride, which led them away from God. This is not a cute children's story about a bunch of people building a big tower. That's about man's arrogance and pride. And then it's about God had had enough. It doesn't matter how big our tower gets. There will be a day in your life where God has enough of you and I building our towers. Do you know that? And that is a sad, frightening day that will come. And so my plea to you this morning first is this. If you are building a tower, may you come to a place of repentance before God brings you to a place of repentance. As one of my mentors always said, God God will either humiliate you or you will humble yourself before God. And my prayer is you'll never be humiliated by by God, but God will bring His judgment onto the people that He cares and loves every time. And that's what He does in verse 5. Look what it says. This is God's awareness. I could stop there and preach a whole sermon series about the awareness of God. There is nothing that we do that goes unnoticed from God. He is aware of all things at all times in your life. What you do in the light and what you do in the dark, though your spouse may not know, though your children may not know, may your boss may not know, but God is aware of it at all times. God sees it all. And it says this in verse 5. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. Now that's a play on words. God doesn't have to come down anywhere because God's presence is always here. What, What Moses is saying is this. He's saying that God had to come down because it was so puny what they were doing. But if you look at Psalm chapter 2, it says that that God laughs at what man is trying to do. Like So what Moses is saying, hey, that tower that you think is so large and that you think is so unstoppable in your life, it's puny to compare that to God. God has to come down and get on His hands and knees to see it because it's too small. It's not reaching heaven. And so whatever tower you're building, it is tiny. I promise you this, no matter how great you might think it is. No how grand this tower in your life is, no matter all these things that you are accumulating in your life, it pales in comparison to God. Like Bill Gates and his money is puny to God. Like you and I, man, I wouldn't mind. I just, man, give me a million of it. 
I don't need a billion of it, just a million of it. To God, he's like, that's nothing. Like a billion dollars to God is nothing. He says it in the Psalms. I own the hills and I own the cattle on the hills. It's all mine. And so what God is saying, I'm aware of it and it is pathetic. So the awareness of God in your life and in my life is at all times and it looks pathetic to him when we try to gain power and control. And now let's go to the last three verses, four verses. You could call it heaven's reversal or God's judgment, however you want to label it in your Bible. But God will always bring judgment to the people of God in their sin. And he says this in verse 6. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they are all of one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. What he's saying is, hey, if this continues, this, this is just going to get worse. And so we see God's judgment. He doesn't want it to get worse. In God's judgment in our lives, it's because He cares for us. Not because He's out to get us. But He deeply cares for us. He doesn't want us... He doesn't want for it to get worse in our lives. Do we see that? When God judges us, it's because He cares for us. The, the strong arm of the Lord is His loving kindness to us. And oftentimes, we don't feel the kindness of the Lord through His judgment. But God is looking at these people. He looks at our lives. Nothing goes unnoticed. And He's saying, hey, if I don't intervene, then it's only going to get worse for them. How come it's only going to get worse? Because in our hearts of hearts, we do not want to come to a place of repentance. That's not in us. We don't desire repentance. Even if you're a believer, your heart does not desire repentance outside of the will of God. And God's will is the one that will always bring you to repentance. You and I don't bring ourselves to repentance. God brings us to repentance. It's because God looks at us and says, enough is enough. I must intervene on their behalf. And so when that grip of the Holy Spirit is happening in your life, it's not because God is angry at you, it's because God loves you that He would bring you to a place of repentance. And so He's saying, the way He says there, hey, if I don't intervene, they're gonna, it's going to get worse. Remember how it got worse in Genesis chapter 5, 6, and 7. That's what happened with the flood. It got worse and worse and worse. And God made this promise, I'm never going to let it get worse again. And so God is going to intervene before it gets too bad. Praise God for that. And so God assesses the situation. God's judgment starts with His assessment. It's going to get worse. So He assesses the situation and assesses the situation. He said, i, I got to do something about it. Because less up to them, they're going to continue to build this built. Building. They're going to continue to build this city. They're going to continue to build a name for themselves and they're going to continue in their pride and arrogance. And then he says this. Remember what man said in verse 3. Let us come together. Remember what man said in verse 4. Let us build a tower. But now look at what God says in verse 6 and 7. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they are all of one language, and 
This is the only the beginning of what they will do and nothing they propose to do will not be impossible for them to do. And now God says, now let us go down. So God uses the very words that humanity used to build themselves a tower and a place. And He says to the, the Son and the Holy Spirit, hey, now let us go intervene on them. Let us go down and do something about it. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit intervene. And they went down. And there was, they confused their languages so that they did not understand one another's speech. So God's assessment is their continuing sin. God's judgment or God's consequences was that He bring confusion. Thank God that God brought confusion to man and woman at Babel so they couldn't continue on in their sin. So He confuses them. And then in verse 8, His judgment goes back to His promise. Remember what His promise was. I'll make you a great nation. And I'll make sure that you multiply and cover the whole earth. That's what I told you to do, but that's my promise that that will happen. So in His assessment, in His judgment, He always fulfills His promises. And so the Lord dispersed them. Okay, you're not going to do it. I'm going to make sure you do it. That is what God will always do in your life. When God sets a plan out for your life, no matter how much you want to thwart it, no matter how much you want to rebel against it, the will of God, you cannot rebel against God. If God wants it to be done, it will be done in your life. And it might come with severe consequences. But God has called all of us to things. So either we can get in line with God or God will make sure we get in line with Him. But God said to man at the very beginning, to Adam and Eve, hey, I want you to be fruitful and I want you to multiply and I want you to cover this whole land. And what did man do in chapter 11? Just 10 chapters later, nah, that's a bad idea. Don't ever tell God he's got a bad idea. It doesn't end well for the people. God said, no, no, this is what I want because this is what I want. This is exactly how it's going to happen. Now, you had an opportunity to do it the way I told you to do it, but now we're going to do it my way. Okay. And so now all of a sudden, languages break out and the people scatter abroad. But it fulfills the promise that God had made back in Genesis chapter 1 to make sure what He had promised in Genesis chapter 3 would happen. And so He confuses them and He sends them out. And so the Lord displaced them from there over the face of the earth and they left off the building of the city. They stopped making a name for themselves. They stopped living in pride. They stopped living in arrogance for a moment. That's the saddest part of the story. For a moment. And then we see what happens next. What happened in Genesis chapter 1. What happened in Genesis chapter 6 and 7. What happened in Genesis chapter 11 continues to happen this cycle of hey the Lord comes near we repent and then we rebel the Lord has to come near we have to repent and the cycle has been continuing ever since that's where you and I come into the picture that was true for us before our salvation that's true for us in our salvation like we will continue to want to rebel against God to make a name for ourselves but here's the great promise in this text. There is redemption coming for us. 
You see, we see three, two times this idea. Come, let us. Come, let us. But if you follow that line of throughout the rest of the Bible, there's a third. Come, let us. So the first one is, come, let us, mankind, do it our way. The second is this, God's going to come and make sure it happens that way. And then the third, come, let us, is this. It's an invitation. Remember what Jesus says to us in Matthew chapter 11. Come to me, all who are weary. I'll give you rest for your souls. And so now there's this, hey, you can do it your way. God's going to do it his way. But there's now an invitation for us to do it God's way. Will we come, let us come to the Lord. See, what happens when we come to him, when we find rest for our souls, we become what the church calls or the Bible calls a church. We come together. We come in this place. Come, let us worship God together. See, the redemption of this story happens in Acts chapter 2. It's, a, it's a, just a moment of what will happen. Remember, God says that He's going to bring all people back to Himself. All the nations will come back to Himself. So in Genesis chapter 11, He disperses all the nations. But if you read Genesis chapter 1, there's a promise that all the nations are going to come back together to praise Him. And so now it's like, how is all these nations from all over the world with all these different languages going to come back to God as one nation, the church? Acts chapter 2 gives us a window to that. Turn to Acts chapter 2. This is the start of the church where Jesus had just ascended back to heaven. And the day of Pentecost has arrived and the Holy Spirit is in their midst. And it says this, and then in chapter 2, verse 1, it says, the day of Pentecost arrived and they were all together in one place. Who's all? Well, all the nations had come back. All the nations that were dispersed across the land had now come back to the day of Pentecost. It said, and suddenly they came from heaven, a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they, all the nations were sitting, and they divided the tongues as the fire appeared to them and rested on each of them, and they were all filled with what? The Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit began to speak in other tongues, but with one tongue so that they all the spirit gave them utterance or understanding in one tongue. So God dispersed everything, but then because Christ had come and returned and then brought all the nations back together, he then began to speak to them in other tongues, but with one tongue to understand who Christ was and then Peter stands up and gives, in my opinion, the second greatest sermon ever to be preached at the day of Pentecost. He lists out who Christ is and what Christ is going to do in the return of Christ. That's a taste of what will happen at the end. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 21 and 22. This is what heaven will look like. This is the new heavens and the new earth. 
This is what the Apostle John saw in his revelation. And I saw no temple. This is 21 verse 22. And I saw no temple in the city. For its temple is the Lord, the God Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need for the sun or the moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives light and, and is a lamp to the Lamb. And by its light, what? Will the nations walk? All the nations will come back together. What God dispersed in Genesis chapter 11, God will redeem at the end. He will bring all the nations back together. All the nations walked and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it and the gates will never be shut by day. And there will be no need for night there. And they, all the nations, will bring into the glory and the honor of the nations. But nothing unclean will ever enter, and nor anyone who does not the detestable or the false, but all those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. What he is saying is all the nations will once again, that word dispersed, once again gather at the throne room of God's grace, and he will redeem all the nations back to himself. And there will be one tongue once again, at the Lamb of God, the throne room of God. And so what God dispersed, God will always redeem. That's true in our lives. Like no matter how far you've wandered, no matter how high your tower's been built, God and His sovereignty and His goodness will come down and bring judgment upon you. But that judgment is to draw you back to Himself so that you can enter into the glory of God. God redeems all things, no matter how bad you've done, God redeems it. You see, we are like the men and the women at the Tower of Babel. And all of us are building towers. And my great hope is this for us this morning. That we would humbly come to the Lord and ask God's forgiveness for building those towers in our life. And my great fear is that God will have to bring His judgment upon us to wreck those towers in our life. But here's what's true. There will be a day, and there will be a day in my life and in your life, if you're a believer, that He will bring that judgment and He will cause you to be back in the throne room of God with all the nations because He cares for us. And so for you and for me this morning in closing is this. Have you come to God? Are you waiting for Him to come to you? Do not wait for God to come to you. This morning you come to Him in repentance before He brings His judgment upon you that pushes you to come to Him. We have a decision to make this morning. We can come to Him or He will come to us. And He comes to us because He cares for us and He loves us. And that's what brings us and draws us back to Him. But He is begging for us to come to Him before He comes to us. Let us pray.